There was a surge of new workers in the labor force last month as the public health outlook improved. Employers added 431,000 jobs as unemployment fell to 3.6 percent. One analyst called the news the great return. It's Friday, April 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins also had a major victory for organized labor in the U.S. Workers at the huge Amazon warehouse on Staten Island have voted overwhelmingly to unionize. That despite a robust effort by Amazon to stop the movement. We'll hear about the risk of cyber warfare and how the U.S. might respond to attacks on the country's infrastructure. And a woman in Arizona was reluctant to ask for a kidney donation. She did, though, and the response overwhelmed her. When I was the most vulnerable and the most near death, I felt so worthy of love and like I could contain it all without qualification. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The International Committee of the Red Cross cannot reach Mariupol, one of the besieged Ukrainian cities the Russian military is intent on capturing. It's a crucial port between Russia and Crimea, the territory Russia illegally annexed in 2014. In the capital, Kiev, NPR's Becky Sullivan says if the Red Cross is unable to get in, it can't get civilians out. The ICRC had been working for weeks to arrange safe passage into Mariupol, the organization has said, and they were on their way in to help evacuate civilians. But the Red Cross team says it was forced to turn back after, quote, conditions made it impossible to proceed. And they suggested that agreements reached to assure the team's safety had been broken. Hundreds of thousands of people have fled Mariupol in the week since Russia began its relentless bombardment that has damaged or destroyed most of the buildings in the city. But tens of thousands of people remain, officials say, living amid food shortages and without access to running water, heat or electricity. Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Kyiv. The U.S. is coming off another month of strong job growth, even though it was not as strong as the month before. The Labor Department's employment report for March shows 431,000 jobs added to payrolls. Many economists thought it was going to be a little closer to 500,000. The unemployment rate fell last month to 3.6 percent. The Labor Department's performance was still considered strong at a time when Russia's invasion of Ukraine contributed to sharp increases in energy prices. U.S. inflation also remains at a 40-year high. Amazon employees at a warehouse on Staten Island are marking a historic win. The majority of their workforce voted to unionize. They'll be the first Amazon site to do so. At the White House, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Amazon's workers have the president's support. The president was glad to see workers ensure their voices are heard uh, with respect to important workplace decisions. He believes firmly that every worker in every state must have a free and fair choice to join a union and the right to bargain collectively with their employer. And we should note that the Staten Island Warehouse is the first Amazon site in the U.S. to vote to unionize. In her exchange with reporters today, Saki was asked about reports that she planned to head to MSNBC in the spring. She neither confirmed nor denied it. The administration is moving to end the pandemic-era border restrictions known as Title 42. Here's NPR's Joel Rose. The CDC says the public health border restrictions will end on May 23rd. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky says the spread of COVID-19 by migrants apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border has, quote, ceased to be a serious danger to the public health, unquote. The restrictions were put in place by the Trump administration early in the pandemic, allowing immigration authorities to quickly expel migrants at the border and sharply limiting those permitted to seek asylum in the U.S. 
Immigrant advocates are welcoming the latest news, but there are concerns among Republicans and some Democrats that the Biden administration is lifting the restrictions without a plan in place to handle an influx of migrants. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston has new restrictions on protests that target specific private homes. Mayor Michelle Wu's office said today the mayor signed an ordinance yesterday to make the change. The new rules ban protests outside homes from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. Supporters say the rule change was needed because early morning protests outside Mayor Wu's Roslindale home disturbed neighbors. Opponents say the measure impinges on free speech. The remains of a World War II airman from Revere will return home tonight after they arrived back on a flight at Logan Airport. It comes 78 years after the airman was killed when his bomber was shot down. WBR's Dave Faniff has more. Army Air Force's Staff Sergeant Charles McMacken was the bombardier of a bomber targeting oil fields in Romania. His plane was shot down and his remains were found by a farmer who buried them. The remains were finally identified in 2017. Revere Mayor Brian Arrigo says McMacken's story gives us a chance to reflect on the values we hold dear as Americans. To think about a young man from the city of Riviera who was nurtured in a tight community, in a neighborhood, really rose to the occasion in some of our darkest hours, and then for him to be able to come back home is really so special. A procession will stop at Revere City Hall just before 9 tonight for a ceremony honoring Sergeant McMacken. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanoff. The third largest city in Massachusetts will end the mask mandate in its school starting Monday. Springfield School Committee voted to make the change yesterday because COVID cases have declined sharply in the past few months. The mandate is also being lifted on mask wearing in public bu- in school buses, that is. Masks will still be required in nurses' offices and for those returning to school from a quarantine after a positive COVID test. Heads up for anybody planning to ride the red line this weekend. Shuttle buses will replace trains between Alewife and Harvard stations tomorrow and Sunday because of track work. The Green Line in Boston remains shut down between Government Center and North Station. That's for inspections and debris removal after last weekend's parking garage collapse that happened above the Green Line Tunnel near Haymarket. In sports, Tampa Bay just now beat the Red Sox, beat the Red Sox that is 9-3 in preseason play. And in the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Breezy, not too cold, about 35 degrees. Tomorrow, generally sunny, highs near 52. Sunday should be on the gray side and damp, mostly cloudy, breezy. Chance of rain on Sunday, highs around 50. 55 degrees now in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. On Staten Island in New York, a historic win for an upstart union. Workers at a massive Amazon warehouse have voted to join the Amazon Labor Union. It's the first Amazon facility in the U.S. to unionize. And organizers vow it won't be the last. NPR's Andrea Shu joins us now. Hi, Andrea. Hi. So let's start with just what makes this win so stunning. Well, no one expected this scrappy grassroots campaign to emerge victorious against the behemoth that is Amazon. 
you know, the Amazon labor union was not backed by traditional labor groups. It didn't have the kind of funding or organizing power that these campaigns often have. It was created by a warehouse supervisor named Chris Smalls after he was fired by Amazon two years ago, almost to this day. He had no union background. He raised money for the operation through GoFundMe. He spent many, many hours talking to workers at a bus stop, and Amazon executives were highly dismissive of him. So you can just imagine after a vote that went for the union by a pretty big margin, we're talking more than 500 votes, he's having his moment. To the first union in American history. Yeah. That's him popping the champagne outside the National Labor Relations Board office where the votes were counted. And um, here's more of what he had to say. This, this right here, um, this is going to be the, the catalyst for the revolution. That's exactly what this is. I just witnessed that. You know, this vote on Staten Island brings more than 8,000 people who work at the warehouse into the union. So Chris Smalls has pulled off what the formidable Teamsters union has been unable to do, organize at Amazon. Last year, the Teamsters vowed they were going to unionize Amazon workers coast to coast. And Amazon is an enormous company. So could you give us some context? How big a setback is this for Amazon? It's a really big setback. Amazon has spent millions of dollars on labor consultants to fight the union campaigns. They've held many, many mandatory meetings for workers, urging them to vote no. They took a pretty aggressive stance against the Amazon labor union. They had Chris Smalls and a couple other people arrested for trespassing while they were delivering food and other materials to the warehouse parking lot a couple months ago. You know, Amazon's work argument to workers is that they've already made Amazon a great place to work without the involvement of a union. And they do offer competitive pay. They offer generous benefits like health care coverage on day one for full-time employees and full tuition for college. But the work inside these warehouses is really grueling. You're on your feet for hours. You're doing very repetitive, very physically demanding work. And workers say the breaks are too short. And turnover at Amazon warehouses can top 100% a year. Oh, wow. So we should say that there was another vote count happening at the same time. Another Amazon mm-hmm. warehouse was voting on a union. Right. Kelsey, that was a do-over election at the warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. So last year, yeah, workers voted more than two to one against joining a well-established national union. Those results were thrown out after the National Labor Relations Board ruled that Amazon had improperly interfered in that election. So workers voted again starting this past February by mail, and those votes were counted yesterday. The no's came out with a small lead, but there are more than 400 contested ballots a hearing is going to be held to determine if any of those ballots will be opened and counted so the best the Bessemer Alabama vote could still go either way. So we'll hold off and wait for those results, but what comes now for the Staten Island workers? Well, you know, voting for the union is just the first step. It's a huge first step, but now comes the collective bargaining. The Amazon labor union says it wants higher wages, longer breaks, paid time off for injuries sustained on the job. And then there are some things that are very specific to New York, like they want a shuttle service to relieve some of the crowding on the public buses. So that's a lot to negotiate in the coming months, and it's likely to be a fight. Amazon has already said they were disappointed in the outcome of the elections, and they may file objections. But there's another election on Staten Island at the end of this month at an Amazon sorting center that has about 1,500 employees. Of course, the union now has a ton of momentum heading into that vote. Well, we'll be watching all of that. That's NPR's Andrea Shu. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Even before Russia invaded Ukraine, we had been hearing warnings that a cyber war could be coming very soon. And then last week, President Biden released a statement regarding cyber threats to the U.S., 
Deputy National Security Advisor Anne Neuberger explained the risk in no uncertain terms in a recent press briefing. She said the warnings are based on, quote, intelligence that the Russian government is exploring options for potential cyber attacks on critical infrastructure in the United States. Well, Anne Neuberger joins us now to talk about those threats. Welcome. Thank you so much, Elsa. It's great to be here with you. It's great to have you. I just want to first get some clarity on what level of threat we're talking about now, because last week you said that there is no certainty that there will be a cyber incident on critical infrastructure. Where are we on that risk as of today? We continue to see evolving intelligence, as we talked about last week, that the Russian government is exploring options. And we continue to, most importantly, double down in working closely with the private sector to share that sensitive threat intelligence and really try to create the urgency for action and the call to action to put in place the cybersecurity measures that would prevent that from being successful. Okay, well, I was wondering if you could give us maybe a concrete scenario, because this idea that there could be attacks on our basic infrastructure, it, it sounds pretty ominous. It's just so our listeners can get a sense, what types of attacks are we talking about here? To be clear, there is no specific intelligence about a specific planned attack. Okay. It is more that in the context of the current geopolitical environment, where there are heightened tensions, in mm -hmm. the context where we've seen Russia conduct cyber attacks in Ukraine, we felt the need to share that information and to really encourage companies, particularly critical infrastructure owners and operators, to take the steps they can take to prevent that from being successful, right. to lock those digital doors, as I've talked about. Right. I understand that you can't share intelligence that's talking about a specific attack that could be imminent now. You say that there's no such intelligence that reflects that. But could you paint us a picture, a scenario, a, a hypothetical? of what a cyber attack could look like on basic infrastructure were it to happen here in the U.S.? Yes. So I'll, I'll use a ransomware example, a criminal example, because it's more about, as you said, the impact. So last year, we saw a criminal ransomware actor disrupt fuel supplies all along the eastern seaboard, right? The colonial pipeline incident, mm -hmm. followed shortly thereafter by another ransomware attack against an operator of essentially a food processing operator. And in both of those cases, what the criminal cyber actor did was leverage, use vulnerabilities to get into the network, to migrate to the operational part of the network where they could disrupt actual operations. I'll note that in 2021 alone, we're aware of over a billion dollars in ransomware-associated payments. So when we talk about the kinds of cyber attacks we're most focused on working to prevent, it's disruption of critical services that Americans rely on. When it comes to prevention, let me ask you, the majority of the country's critical infrastructure, it's owned and operated by the private sector. Is that a problem? I mean, how much can the U.S. government tell these companies what to do in order to prevent cyber attacks? You're asking a core question, Elsa, because cybersecurity is a cost. For a number of sectors, the U.S. government does have the authority to mandate minimum cybersecurity measures, things like cyber alarm systems, things like exercising incident response plans, backing up data, ensuring that patches are done quickly because that ensures that technology vulnerabilities are closed mm -hmm. quickly. We've made significant progress in improving digital resilience in the last year. Right, and I suppose it's in these companies' self-interest to prevent cyber attacks. 
It is. You have been saying recently that there has been an uptick in bad actors scanning for vulnerable devices, that there's been other signs of intrusion in our networks. How common is that, that, that kind of scanning? Like, does it lead you to believe that Russia is indeed preparing to launch a cyber attack against the U.S. or the U.S.'s allies? Scanning systems for vulnerabilities is fairly common, whether criminal actors, Russian actors, actors who may seek to steal research and technology, as we've talked about other countries like China doing in the past. You have countries like North Korea, who often target banks to acquire hard currency as part of their sanctions evasion. So scanning systems to try to find vulnerabilities is fairly common. That being said, at a time of heightened geopolitical tensions, where we have an actor like Russia who has used cyber to coerce or destabilize or undermine, disrupt critical services, not in the United States, but in countries like Ukraine and Georgia, mm -hmm. we felt it was prudent to be open and transparent with the American people, to raise awareness, and to call companies to action to address it. I am curious how NATO would come into play in cyber warfare. Because, of course, we've heard a lot about Article 5, um, which says that if a NATO ally is the victim of an attack, every other member of NATO will consider that attack against all of them. Does Article 5 apply to cyber attacks? As you've said, we've noted that one or more, NATO has noted that one or more cyber attacks of a significant nature could reach the level that an Article 5 physical attack would happen because we'd be looking for equivalent parity with regard to impact. Okay. What is the threshold, I guess? Cyber is still a new field, Elsa. Mm -hmm. It's an area where we are learning how the principles that have been put in place from a national security perspective in the physical arena land in the cyber arena. So the principles we've put in place are to say, yes, one or more cyber incidents could reach the threshold of an armed attack to where it would reach an Article 5 attack. And we've having consultations among the countries who are participants in NATO to discuss what that might look like. That is Deputy National Security Advisor Anne Neuberger. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Elsa. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the author of a new novel about political dynamics and families, a work inspired by the writer's time as a speechwriter. In business, the Northboro-based electric vehicle company plans to build a new manufacturing plant in Georgia. Aspen Aerogel says the facility will build materials that can protect batteries in the vehicles from fires. The plant is expected to employ about 250 people. Wall Street numbers are next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed money at findmassmoney.com. Wall Street has started its second quarter up. The Dow rose 0.40 percent, and that's 140 points to close at 34,818. S&P gained 0.34 percent to finish the day at 45.46. NASDAQ gained 0.29 percent to end the session at 14,262. All the details are coming up on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. It's now 4.19.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan. A wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. And Office for the Arts at Harvard and Harvard Jazz Bands, honoring pianist Gonzalo Rubalcaba, tomorrow at 8, Sanders Theater, boxoffice.harvard.edu. After a day where the sunshine and showers have mixed it up, we've got a partly cloudy night tonight, down about 35. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine through the day, warming to about 54 degrees tops. And then Sunday, some showers every now and then, highs around 50. 55 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data Aiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Kelsey Snell. What kind of person takes on the task of running for office? And who has supported them along the way? Well, a new novel, Let's Not Do That Again, focuses in on the family of Nancy Harrison, who's in the House and running for Senate. There's her always supportive son, Nick, and her kind of off-the-rails daughter, Greta. It's a story of family, drama, humor, and co-op living in Manhattan. The author is Grant Ginder, and he joins us now. Welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So this is a very fun story. There's tension and family drama. And I have to say, I'm normally on Capitol Hill covering Congress. And this story made me think about the politics in our own families and the secrets we all carry. So I'm wondering, where did this story start for you? Was it a character, a moment? Where did you find these people? So I I conceived the book around, I would say around 2018 and finished it three years later in, 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 in probably 2021. And, and during that time, I, I watched as, as our government, I think, was being threatened from you know, left, right, and center, be it by, by a president who was telling like Orwellian lies or, or this global pandemic that was straining our institutions. And I kind of became obsessed with this question of how far I, or, or, or anyone for that matter, would, would go to protect American democracy. Which, which until this point was something that I had always just kind of taken for granted. Hmm. So I took that question and I said, okay, so, so, so that, that's kind of this interesting macro question. But, but what has always really interested me are, are family dynamics and particularly dysfunctional family dynamics. And so I thought, well, what if I, what if I give that question to, to this political family? And it has added weight because the consequences of it will, of course, you know, reverberate through this campaign, but will also drastically change their own individual futures. Yeah, I think it's really interesting you mentioned that because this is literally a political family, but it is also a very political story about family. <laughs> it is. It is. And and that question of how politics play out within a family where power dynamics are constantly shifting between siblings and between children has always really, really interested me. My, my past three novels have all been about that. And Let's Not Do That Again is, is certainly, certainly about those dynamics. 
So most people find escapism writing a story completely removed from the all-political, you know, landscape we live in right now, but you've really leaned into this. Why did you decide that? So in, in one sense, it was my way, I think, of grappling just with what was going on in the world and what I was seeing. Um, but I also wanted to have fun with politics. I, it has been so long, I think, that we've been able to look at politics through this guise of, of, of humor and excitement and fun. And, and so I really wanted to capture that, that feeling that we got when we were watching Veep or The West Wing, and we were actually excited to engage in these stories. So you worked as a speechwriter um, and you were a congressional intern. So did anything in that experience kind of find its way into this book? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> in terms of the intern on Capitol Hill, you know, you, you really you as a Capitol Hill reporter, I'm sure, you know, all the pomp and circumstance and respectability that you see on TV is is really just a matter of setting and lights, right? And that the, the, the reality is that no one really knows what they're doing until the moment that they're doing it. And that these elected officials and the staff members who attend to them are, are just as hapless as the rest of us. And so that dynamic certainly makes its way into the novel. Speech writing, I, I absolutely adored. Um, it was, it was, I think, one of the my, my most enjoyable jobs that I've had. I will say that that I was terrible at politics when I lived oh, in DC. Really? I just just absolutely terrible? terrible at it. I think that, you know, I I look at Washington as a town that trades and access and knowing things first and it and it always felt like I was always the last person to know something. But when it came to speech writing, what I really loved was discovering and learning how narratives could be rhetorical and how stories could convince someone of something and change their mind. Um and so I, I actually credit speechwriting for for driving me to to fiction, to write novels. I later went on to get my MFA in New York, but I still think that speechwriting taught me more about writing fiction, as it were, than any degree that I got. I'm so glad you mentioned the idea of stories driving politics because it seems like a big theme throughout this book is how personal stories and powerful loneliness and powerlessness can be in and of themselves political motivations, not to mention love. So I'm wondering how you were thinking about those things as you were writing. There's one character in particular that is in fact manipulated by both lies that she's been told by members of her family and also stuff that she encounters, political rhetoric that she encounters online. And so that notion of, of how political narratives can change our minds for, for the better, but also for the worse, and how love, as you mentioned, can be, of course, this incredibly positive thing, but also can be used to manipulate and control were two themes that I was intensely interested in when I was writing the book. So this is also a very funny book. And one of the <laughs> yeah. things that was very funny to me is that Nick, Nancy's son, was walked away from working for his mother for a long time as a speechwriter and, and just kind of as everything to her in some ways. And he leaves and now he's teaching writing at NYU, but he's also working on this musical inspired by the life of Joan Didion. And it's called Hello to All That. I just, I have to ask, where did you get the idea for this? Is this some seed of reality? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, there is, so, there is, there is an unfortunate amount of reality in this, in that 
I myself teach writing at NYU, and I myself often teach essays by Joan Didion. I'm a, I'm a huge Didion fan. I'm also like a, a, an unabashed musical theater geek. And so I was working on the book, and I was trying to give Nick something to do. You know, he's he's left working for his mother. He's finally striking out on his own. And I wanted him to write a musical because that just seems like such a pie in the sky dream, right? Like I know nothing about writing musicals, but I would love to write one. And I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this guy that goal. And as you pointed out, the, the book, I hope, the, I hope people find the book to be very funny. So when thinking about that, I was like, well, what, what could be the most ridiculous thing, the most out of this world, inappropriate thing for a musical to be about? And, you know, musicals are, by their nature, I think, just intensely sentimental. Mm -hmm. And Didion was intensely unsentimental. <laughs> and so after teaching this Didion essay on self-respect, in class one day, I was walking home from the subway and I thought, you know what? That would be the most ridiculous musical I have ever seen. It's a <laughs> musical about the early life of Joan Didion. And so... You know, I started thinking about titles for it, and she, of course, has the classic essay about leaving New York, goodbye to all that. And so I just kind of flipped it around, hello to all that, put an exclamation point at the end, and I said, that's it. The exclamation point is really what does it. <laughs> <laughs> Grant Ginder, his new novel, Let's Not Do That Again, is out next Tuesday. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. When Abigail Barlow and Emily Baer watched the Netflix series Bridgerton, they couldn't stop thinking about it. So they wrote a song about it and then an album that has been nominated for a Grammy. Listen to the story on the next episode of NPR's podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, an Arizona woman was reluctant to ask for a kidney donation because she didn't feel worthy enough. Eventually, she did ask. Rather than feeling guilty, she was surprised and is now feeling simply grateful. A transplant recipient's story of gratitude coming up. Clouds went out going into the evening and the first part of the night tonight, then clearing skies overnight, leading to a bright day tomorrow. Should have lots of sunshine tomorrow. High temperatures in the mid-50s again. Sunday should be the dimmer day. Considerably cloudy. The chance of afternoon showers. Highs just about 50. It's 430. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. Hi, I'm Eleanor Beardsley from NPR. It's very important that reporters document what is happening on the ground in Ukraine so that you hear the voices and stories of the people affected, not just those in power. NPR is able to bring you coverage from Ukraine because you support this vital work to bear witness. Your donation to this station makes it possible. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The head of the UN's nuclear watchdog says he will lead a mission to the Chernobyl nuclear site as soon as possible now that Russian troops have handed control of the site back to Ukrainian officials. NPR's Kerry Skyring has more from Vienna. Rafael Mariano Grossi has just returned from talks with nuclear officials in both Ukraine and Russia. He described the departure of Russian soldiers from Chernobyl as a step in the right direction, but could not confirm reports some soldiers were suffering radiation exposure. 
Grossi says he will lead a support mission to Chernobyl as soon as possible and provide assistance to other nuclear sites in Ukraine. NPR's Carrie Skyring reporting. Income-driven repayment plans offer federal student loan borrowers affordable monthly payments and after 20 to 25 years, cancellation of any remaining debts. But an NPR investigation finds the program has been undermined by mistakes and inconsistency. NPR's Corey Turner has more. NPR found the U.S. Department of Education and its student loan servicers have for years badly mismanaged the program in a way that could delay or derail many low-income borrowers on that long path to loan cancellation. In response to NPR's findings, a department spokesperson says in a statement, borrowers place their trust in us to make sure these plans work the way they were intended to, and we intend to honor that trust. The statement goes on to say that this current situation is, quote, unacceptable, that the department will be making changes to get things right moving forward, and to, quote, fix this for the borrowers who have been harmed. Corey Turner, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow was up 139 points to end the day at 34,818. The Nasdaq up 40 points to end at 14,261. The S&P 500 up 15 points to end at 4545. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Lemonster is preparing to honor the life of a fallen Marine captain. Ross Reynolds was one of four Marines killed when their Osprey aircraft crashed during NATO exercises in Norway two weeks ago. In a Facebook post of residents, Lemonster Mayor Dean Mazzarella says Reynolds' body is set to arrive at Logan Airport tomorrow. There will then be a procession home. We are expected to return back to Lemonster between 2.30 and 3.30. Bring your flags, signs, whatever you'd like. Please uh, show great support. This is so important to the family. A candlelight vigil will be held on Sunday with a public wake Monday. Both will be at City Hall, then funeral services will be held Tuesday. The Boston Symphony Orchestra is joining musicians around the world by dedicating performances to the people of Ukraine. WBOR's Andrea Shea has more. Audience members stood as the BSO and Tanglewood Festival Chorus began last night's concert with the Ukrainian National Anthem. piece was followed by Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, a pacifist work commissioned 60 years ago. You know, the piece speaks to the horror and senselessness of war. Gail Samuel is the BSO's president and CEO. So I think really gave a moment for comfort and in this moment we hope awareness. The musicians repeated their expressions of peace this afternoon at Symphony Hall and will again tomorrow night at 8 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. The Massachusetts State Senate will continue to operate in a hybrid fashion. Lawmakers voted yesterday to extend the pandemic emergency rules that allow senators to vote on bills remotely or in person. Those rules are now set to expire at the end of July. That's the end of the current legislative session. And high school seniors in Massachusetts lead the nation in performance on advanced placement exams. Nearly one in three students in the state in last year's graduating class scored a three or higher on at least one AP exam. That's according to figures released today by the standardized testing organization, the College Board. Scoring three or above demonstrates the student's ability to complete coursework at the college level. It is the second year in a row that Massachusetts had the highest, the nation's highest percentage of students who achieved that score. 
in the forecast after a fickle day today. Sun and showers taking turns. We've got clouds and maybe some showers tonight, but then clearing by morning, 35 degrees or so. And for tomorrow, sunshine through the day, warming to about 54. Sunday, some showers during the afternoon. Clouds pretty much all day long Sunday. Highs around 50. 55 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. We got a really positive report card today on the nation's job market. U.S. employers added 431,000 jobs last month, and the unemployment rate fell to just 3.6%. With sizzling demand for workers and at least a temporary lull in the pandemic, more people are now coming off the sidelines to look for jobs. And in a lot of cases, they're finding them. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now with more. Hey, Scott. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. So I understand that this is now the 11th month in a row that the U.S. has added more than 400,000 jobs. Can, Can we officially say that the economy has fully recovered from the damage done by the pandemic? I mean, what do you think? Not quite. We're still about 1.6 million jobs short of where we were before the pandemic, but that gap is closing pretty rapidly. There had been some concern that the spike in gasoline prices last month following Russia's invasion of Ukraine might have weighed on job growth. But restaurants, retailers, factories, construction crews all added jobs at a healthy pace in March. What's more, employment gains for January and February were revised up by a total of 95,000 jobs. At the White House, President Biden expressed hope that all these additional workers will help the economy to deliver both the goods and services that the American people have been clamoring for. And more and more Americans get jobs as they do. It's going to help ease the supply pressures we've seen. And that's good news for fighting inflation. It's good news for our economy, and it means that our economy has gone from being on the mend to being on the move. At 3.6%, the unemployment rate has almost returned to where it was before the coronavirus struck. Hmm. And that decline in unemployment was really broad-based last month. Men, women, blacks, whites, Latinos, Asian Americans. African-American unemployment actually saw the biggest drop in March, although at 6.2%, it is still above the national average. Right. But I mean, Scott, even with all of these new jobs added last month, employers, they still want, they still need more workers right now, right? That's right. Uh, Right now, job openings far outnumber unemployed workers, which is unusual. But there was some good news on that score. More than 400,000 people joined or rejoined the workforce last month. That's on top of another big gain in February. So while we still have fewer workers than we did before the pandemic, the worker shortage is beginning to ease a bit. Uh, Julia Pollack is chief economist with the job search website ZipRecruiter. She thinks a lot of would-be workers who sat out 2021 are going to be back in the workforce this year. The great return, I think, is the, is the new labor market story. Of course, the year got off to a rocky start with, with Omicron, but now seems to be the time that people are starting to stream back. 
COVID cases are way down since the beginning of the year, so people might feel more comfortable getting back to work. And with COVID relief payments from the government now long since expired, some people might be feeling some economic pressure to start drawing a paycheck. Yeah. Well, when workers do come back into the job market, do they find that they have more leverage? Yeah, it's a worker's market right now. Employers are eager to hire, and in many cases, they're willing to pay more, offer better schedules, more flexibility. Tanya Breslow helps to recruit workers for restaurants around the country. That's an industry that added 61,000 jobs last month. And Breslow says the tables have turned. It's the candidates now interviewing the prospective employers. It's not the prospective employers interviewing the candidates. The candidates have leverage whereas before they did not have leverage. Wages are up 5.6% in the last year. In the hospitality industry, they're up nearly 12%. Now, inflation watchdogs are keeping a close eye on that. They're nervous that the wage increases might feed into higher inflation. But President Biden says he's not worried about the increased bargaining power for workers. He says it's long overdue. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. A woman in Arizona was reluctant to ask for a kidney donation because she didn't feel worthy. Eventually, she did and was overwhelmed by the response. Thirteen people die in the U.S. each day waiting for a kidney. Reporter Laurel Morales brings us the story of one lucky recipient who's celebrating Donate National Donate Life Month. Monica Brown was raised Catholic and at a young age became preoccupied with ideas of good and bad. When the nuns told me that we are born with original sin, I took that very seriously. And so often I never felt good or worthy enough. At night, she would pray for forgiveness for things like getting her shoes wet. She'd make the sign of the cross again and again. She also prayed for her mother's kidney disease to be cured. It was terrifying to have a mother who was sick and so young and vibrant to have an awareness of mortality and danger. Her mom had autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. It causes fluid-filled cysts to grow in your kidneys. It gets worse with time, and it's inherited. Monica's mother had it. Her grandmother died from it. Monica was in graduate school when she got her own diagnosis. I thought I had it. I knew to my bones that I had it. So it felt like a confirmation rather than a revelation. Monica and her then-boyfriend didn't waste any time. They got married, moved to Flagstaff, and had two daughters. Focused on parenting, writing books, and teaching. Years passed. Then one night, in her mid-40s, Monica's stomach started hurting. Badly. If 10 is passing out, I am a nine. (laughs) (laughs) It is agonizing. She wound up having the first of 12 surgeries and being put on the long wait list for a kidney from a donor who died. While waiting two years, Monica became sicker and sicker. Her husband, Jeff Berglund, pleaded with her to ask friends for a living kidney donation. Still, those earlier worries about feeling good enough crept in. I felt ashamed. I certainly did not feel worthy of asking. Then I said, what is the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is you've educated a lot of people, about hundreds of thousands of people who are on the waiting list, where they're at. And that's a good thing. Eventually, she agreed. So on May 9th, 2018, Jeff posted a letter on Facebook. Dear friends, family, and readers of Monica's work, 
It will probably come as a surprise to you that my amazing wife, the writer Monica Brown, has been living with an incurable inherited kidney disease. Within minutes, responses came pouring in. A total of 27 friends got tested to see if they were a match. The response was unbelievable. It was probably one of the most overwhelming, blessed moments of my life. Unfortunately, none of Monica's friends was a match. At this point, she was close to dying. But then she received a call from her doctor, a kidney, a match. I would have danced into the surgical room if they had let me. It's been three years since her transplant. Monica is now 52 and just walked her first 5K. When I was the most vulnerable and the most literally near death in terms of an organ I needed to live failing, I felt so worthy of love and like I could contain it all without qualification. Monica Brown received a kidney and finally felt worthy of the gift. For NPR News, I'm Laurel Morales. This story comes to us from the podcast Two Lives. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Three of the five nominees in the Grammy Awards children's music category withdrew their names last year. They were outraged that the list had only white musicians. The slate for this Sunday's Grammys is different. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports. This year, all of the Grammy's contenders for Best Children's Music are musicians of color. That includes reggae artist Aaron Nigel Smith, whose album All One Tribe is a collection of songs by 26 black musicians. Here he is with Shine in the Moonbeams, singing about marching for social justice. But don't give up, we're at the brink. Let our voices remain strong. This is not the kind of children's song traditionally celebrated at the Grammys, nursery rhymes or so-called white guy with a guitar kids music. Smith says last year's all-white Grammy slate was out of touch. It was shocking to see there was no representation, especially during the year of Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, you know, people standing up for human rights and justice. So we protested. In 2020, Smith and several other nominees this year formed the coalition Family Music Forward to amplify black voices in children's music. Last year, they challenged the Recording Academy to include more artists of color, and they urged voting members to consider more diverse music for families. Jazz and hip-hop and reggae and soul and funk and R&B. The Grammy-nominated bilingual album Activate features cumbia, merengue, bossa nova, and other Latin American rhythms, and renowned singers such as Ruben Blades. Actívate is the first Grammy nomination for Uno, Dos, Tres, Andres, Andres Salguero. He's from Bogota and sings with his wife, Cristina Sanabria, from Kansas. You know, children's music isn't even 
a genre per se, it's an audience. More than half of the children in the U.S. are non-white. Lucky Diaz and the Family Jam Band are also nominated for a Grammy. Their album Crayon Kids has a song about kids living through the coronavirus pandemic. There's a vaccine, what does even that mean? Falgadi Shah, a singer from India whose stage name is Falu, is nominated for her album A Colorful World. Stars are rising, crickets sing their song. Nominee Pierce Freelon's Afrofuturistic album Black to the Future includes the voices of his grandmother, his 11-year-old daughter Stella, and his mother, Nina Freelon, also nominated this year for a Best Jazz Vocal Album. Freelon also honors one of his heroes, actor and reading advocate LaVar Burton. Roots kept us grounded in black thought. <laughs> now Kunta can taste free like LaVar. He was crowned King Kunta by Kendrick Lamar. Freelon gives thanks to Alistair Mook and the group's Dog on Fleas and the Okie Dokie Brothers for turning down their nominations last year. As loud as we were yelling, it really took a radical act from these three white male allies to pry open the eyelids of their <laughs> of their peers. Freelon says together they're shifting the paradigm of children's music at the Grammys. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. I can teach you how to fly like an angel. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, coming up the place where the environmental movement and the far right overlap in their views. If you were in New England 25 years ago today, you might remember a storm that was no joke. Today marked 25 years since the April Fool's Day blizzard of 1997. It dumped 25 inches in Boston, 33 inches of snow in Worcester. The springtime snow came after a relatively uneventful winter season for snowfall. Tonight's forecast and for the weekend coming up. On last week's Wait, Wait, our panelist Emmy Blotnick mistook our show for Shark Tank. I'm I'm starting a dating website for people who have been pecked by birds. (laughs) They need a way to find each other. (laughs) On Peter Sagal, we will have lots of suggestions, none of them profitable, along with special guest Slash on this week's news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast for tonight, no snow, no fooling, just clouds and some spring rainfall, lows in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, sunny and dry in the mid-50s. Sunday should be the grayer day. Lots of clouds, maybe some showers, highs around 50. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, celebrating Independent Bookstore Day in Boston and Cambridge on April 30th. Scavenger Hunt, Silent Reading Party, and more. PorterSquareBooks.com and The Huntington's Our Daughters Like Pillars, a stunning, epic new play by Kirsten Greenwich that follows a contemporary black family as they navigate the joys and tensions of sisterhood. Running from April 8th through May 8th at the Huntington Calderwood BCA. All tickets come with digital insurance. Learn more at HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. You know, in a city like Boston that's changing so fast, experience matters. Reporters Martha Biebinger, Anthony Brooks, and the entire WBUR newsroom are out in the community to take you behind the headlines so you can start your day in the know. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Kelsey Snell. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Picture two circles. One is the modern environmental movement, and the other is the far-right movement, including anti-immigrant and white supremacist groups. In the Venn diagram with these two circles, how much do you think they overlap? Part of making America great again is making it green again. We know there's, there's information out there that says that every time someone crosses the border, they're leaving between six and eight pounds of trash in the desert. Now, this trash Illegal immigration comes at a huge cost to our environment. Researchers say this intersection between the far right and environmentalism is bigger than many people realize, and it's growing. As climate change kind of turns up the heat, there's going to be all sorts of new kind of political contestations around these issues. Alex Amond used to track hate groups at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and these days he researches eco-fascism. He says once you start to look at this overlap, you find two big misconceptions. One, that the right is always a climate denialist movement, and two, that environmental politics are always going to be left-leaning. Let's take those one at a time, starting with the idea that the far right always rejects environmental arguments. Conservative leaders have certainly denied climate change in the because past. Because this is a worldwide hoax. From Rush Limbaugh to Donald Trump. It is. It's probably getting a little bit warmer, and then in a number of years or decades, it'll get a little bit cooler. But today, a different argument is becoming more common on the conservative political fringe. On the podcast The People's Square, a musician who goes by Storm King described his vision for a far-right reclamation of environmentalism. Right-wing environmentalism in this country is mostly, especially in more modern times, an untried attack vector. And it has legs, in my opinion. Attack vector is an apt choice of words because this ideology has been used in literal attacks. In El Paso, Texas, in 2019, a mass shooter killed more than 20 people and wounded more than 20 others. He told authorities he was targeting Mexicans, and he also left behind a manifesto. Quote, the decimation of the environment is creating a massive burden for future generations. The shooter wrote, if we can get rid of enough people, then our way of life can be more sustainable. He titled that manifesto, An Inconvenient Truth which was also the name of Al Gore's Oscar-winning 2006 documentary about climate change. KTAR News, Newsmaker. Anti-immigrant environmental arguments pop up in more official places, too, like court filings. We are talking with Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich about his new lawsuit against the federal government claiming that stopping wall building is a violation of the Environmental Protection Act. Local news station KTAR interviewed Arizona Attorney General Burnovich last year about this case. Brnovich argued that because migrants leave trash in the desert, a border wall is needed to protect the environment. That trash is a threat to wildlife. It's a threat to natural habitat. To be clear, mainstream environmental organizations take the opposite view, that a wall will harm ecosystems on the border. This strain of anti-immigrant environmentalism may be growing today, but it isn't new. And that brings us to misconception number two, that environmental politics are always left-leaning. The truth is, eco-fascism has a long history in the U.S. and in Europe. Blair Taylor is a researcher at the Institute for Social Ecology. The idea that natural purity translates into racial or national purity, that was one that was very central to the Nazis' environmental discourse. Quote-unquote, unspoiled forest goes hand-in-hand with racial purity or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Nazis saw themselves as environmentalists. 
In the 90s, when Taylor started reading books about the environmental movement, he stumbled upon some ideas that seemed very wrong. There is this earlier, very nativist, exclusionary, and racist history of environmental thought that was very much based on this idea of nature as a violent, competitive, and ultimately very hierarchical domain where, you know, white Europeans were at the top. So that's been rediscovered, I think, by the alt-right. Taylor was kind of horrified to learn that in some ways the environmental movement was founded on ideas of white supremacy. The word ecology was even coined by a German scientist, Ernst Haeckel, who also contributed to the Nazis' ideas about a hierarchy of races. And this history applies to the United States, too. I am the author of The Rise of the American Conservation Movement, Power, Privilege, and Environmental Protection. That's Yale University professor Dorsita Taylor. Her research helped reveal this American environmental history that had not been widely known. We see a taking of Native American lands to turn into park spaces that are described as empty, untouched by human hands, pristine, to be protected. So this is where the language of preservation really crosses over into this narrative of of exclusion. Taylor read the notes and diaries of early American environmentalists and learned that the movement to preserve natural spaces in the U.S. was partly motivated by a backlash against the racial mixing of American cities. White elites, especially white male elites, wanted to leave the spaces where there was racial mixing. And this discomfort around racially mixed neighborhood infuses the discourse of those early conservation leaders. So the connections between environmentalism and xenophobia in the U.S. are long and deep. In recent years, some prominent groups have begun to publicly confront their own exclusionary history, like the Sierra Club. We're not going to just pretend that the problem's not happening. We're actually going to begin to do the responsible thing and then begin to address it. Hop Hopkins is the Sierra Club's Director of Organizational Transformation. And the organization went through its own transformation. In the 20th century, the group embraced racist ideas that overpopulation was the root of environmental harm. In fact, in 1998 and again in 2004, anti-immigrant factions tried to stage a hostile takeover of the Sierra Club's national board. They failed, but the group learned a lesson from those experiences. You can't just ignore these ideas or wish them away. We need to be educating our base about these dystopian ideas and the scapegoating that's being put upon black, indigenous, and people of color, working class communities, such that they're able to identify these messages that may sound like they're environmental, but we need to be able to discern that they're actually very racist. Do you ever encounter people who say, I believe in the environmental movement, I believe in the racial justice movement, these two things have nothing to do with each other? I encounter it on a daily basis, and that's part of the reason why I do the work that I do. That work goes beyond identifying the racism and bigotry in the environmental movement. It also means articulating a vision that can compete with ecofascism. Because as climate change increases, more people will go looking for some narrative to address their fears of collapse, says Professor Emerita Betsy Hartman of Hampshire College. If you have this apocalyptic doomsday view of climate change, the far right can use that doomsday view to its own strategic advantage. So we're letting an opening happen that doesn't need to be there. In that way, the threat of ecofascism has something in common with climate change itself. The problem is visible now, and there is time to address it. But the longer people wait, 
the harder it's going to be. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rock Auto, an online auto parts store with everything from complex electrical parts for modern daily drivers to new brake shoes for old favorites. More at rockauto.com. From Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Last year marked the lowest pace of population growth in U.S. history. Is the trend a dangerous one? A country that stops growing is a zero-sum country, and zero-sum countries lead to zero-sum games. Zero-sum games lead to culture wars. It's Friday, April 1st. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. What else slow population growth could mean for the country coming up? Florida's lieutenant governor talks about the new parental rights in education law, known by critics as the don't say gay law. This is solely about classroom instruction, curriculum, that we feel are best left for older grades. We feel that they're best left, quite frankly, to the family in the home. Also in Ukraine, the wave of Lviv is a radio station working to balance an irreverent tone with news from the front lines. It's 5.01. News headlines and the Wall Street numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ukrainian officials are denying responsibility for overnight explosions in a Russian city near the border. NPR's Yulian Haidal reports from Lviv Russian officials are accusing Ukraine of carrying out an attack. Russian officials claimed two Ukrainian helicopters flew 20 miles into Russian territory, firing missiles at an oil depot in the city of Belgorod. A spokesman for Ukraine's Ministry of Defense, Oleksandr Matuzyanik, says their military operations are happening only on Ukrainian soil. Matuzyanik says Ukraine can't take responsibility for, quote, all missteps, catastrophes, or goings-on in the Russian Federation. Ukrainian intelligence said a munitions facility accidentally exploded in Belgorod on Wednesday. Russian airstrikes have destroyed several oil depots in Ukraine in recent weeks. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Lviv, Ukraine. Amazon workers at a massive warehouse on Staten Island have voted to unionize. It is an unprecedented win for an independent labor union led by former and current Amazon workers. NPR's Andrea Shu has more. The final vote was 2,654 votes for the union and 2,131 against. The warehouse workers will join Amazon Labor United, a grassroots organization that sprung up just two years ago, financed through Go 
GoFundMe. Its president, Christian Smalls, is a former supervisor at the warehouse. He was fired from the company in March 2020 and began organizing workers amid growing discontent over working conditions. Among the union's demands, higher wages, longer breaks, and paid sick leave and paid time off for injuries. The Staten Island warehouse becomes the first Amazon facility in the U.S. to unionize. A second facility across the street will hold a union vote later this month. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is headed to cable news channel MSNBC later this spring. The news was first reported by Axios and confirmed by NPR. NPR's David Falkenflick reports. Saki is expected to be a pundit for MSNBC and to host her own show on the sister Peacock streaming service. She has been known for subduing hostile questions in the White House briefing room while returning a measure of respect and decorum to relations with the press. She served in the Obama White House as communications director. It is not her first stint in cable news. She worked for CNN during the Trump years. Saki would be the latest in a stream of White House aides to go into TV news, from Bill Clinton spokesman George Stephanopoulos at ABC to a raft of Donald Trump aides at Fox News, CBS and CNN. The White House did not confirm or deny the report, saying Saki was continuing to work hard on President Biden's behalf to get answers to reporters' questions. David Folkenflik. NPR News. Stocks rebounded from yesterday's major sell-off to begin the second quarter on more of an up note. The Dow up 139 points. The Nasdaq rose 40 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Ramadan starts at sundown today. The month-long observance is one of the five pillars that make up the core of Islam. Abdul Qadir Farah is with the Islamic Society of Boston. He says it's a time of blessings and togetherness. It's a time of healing, you know, where we remember those who we lost and we make a prayer for those who we didn't lose but went into a criti- critical condition. So Ramadan is a, a time of unity, a time of mercy and tranquility and grace. Farah says during prayers, people traditionally stand close to one another and touch, but because of the pandemic, they weren't able to do that in the past two years. The practice, however, will resume. And despite the lifting of local mask mandates, masks will still be required in the mosque during prayers as a precaution. A heads up, if you're riding the T, the MBTA will bus redline passengers between Alewife and Harvard stations this weekend. The T will work on the track system on that line tomorrow, Sunday, and next weekend. Meanwhile, Green Line service is still suspended in Boston between North Station and Government Center. That's because of last weekend's partial collapse of a Government Center parking garage. And the T has scrapped earlier plans to shut down part of the blue line for two weeks starting this weekend for tunnel repairs. The T says it will reschedule the closure between airport and Bowdoin stations until later this spring. Salisbury officials are considering a proposal to rename the Salisbury Beach State Reservation after a World War II veteran, 98-year-old Robert Boutchouinard. Supporters say the honor would recognize the Salisbury residents' military service and his work as a mentor to children and a longtime head lifeguard at the reservation. Salisbury selectman Freeman Condon says Boots has had an indelible impact on Salisbury for decades. The ocean can be somewhat difficult and rough off of Salisbury Beach, so the Salisbury lifeguards have a history of tremendous rescues, and their conditioning program was always rigorous, and Boots was part of that. Condon says he will introduce a motion to begin the process at the next selectman's meeting. In sports, Red Sox are topped by Tampa Bay. Today's spring training play, 9-3. to Celtics play the Pacers tonight. And in the forecast, clouds went out into the evening, first part of tonight, then clearing skies overnight, leading to a bright, sunny day tomorrow. Highs in the mid-50s. Sunday should be the grimmer day, considerably cloudy. Chance of afternoon showers, highs around 50. 54 degrees now in Boston at 506. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, social security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Today in Ukraine, it was too dangerous for a team from the International Committee of the Red Cross to execute a large-scale evacuation in the besieged city of Mariupol. They hope it will be safe enough to try again tomorrow. Meanwhile, in the northwestern part of the country, life looks a little more normal, if still tense. And if you tune your radio to 100.8, you can find a station known as Wave of Lviv, broadcasting pop music and witty banter. But what do you do with a station like that when war comes to your country? The answer involves a lot of careful balance. NPR's Scott Detrow reports from Lviv. To get to the wave of Lviv's broadcast studio, you walk through a courtyard, down several stone steps, and through a long, arched underground hallway, past an old gray boombox. The studio itself has thick brick walls. Do you see this wall? It doubles as a bomb shelter when Lviv's air raid sirens go off, and that's especially important since the radio station is right near the kind of big communications towers that have been targets in other cities. We also broadcast the siren, staying people to go to the shelter. Yuri Homiak is the station's director. He's 26. He took over the job from his dad just a few months ago. When the war started, we had a tough decision. Our radio station works on the from the advertisements. Uh, all the businesses closed down in in Ukraine, in Lviv, uh, so we had no funding, and uh, we thought about uh, should we stay on broadcasting. They decided to stay on the air. Everybody took pay cuts to keep the station afloat, and they made another important decision, too, to keep their irreverent style. Yeah, especially at the beginning of the war, people telephoned us, uh, said that we were uh, too sarcastic, too uh, ironic, but um, our hosts, uh, they decided to stay this way, We try to mix uh, the things up just to keep our listeners uh, more happy. Taras Havrik has been on the air for eight years. Listeners know him for his jokes and his rapping. He's got on two earrings, a leopard print shirt, and has bangs under his hill figure hat. I want to have, like, funny airs. I want to joke uh, in my studio. But it is what it is. We have war here, so... His show is more serious than before, more segments on how listeners can help raise funds and morale for the army, things like that. But Taras makes a point to save time for music and laughs. People still need a break. Maybe distraction is uh, one of the rules of this music. To to feel uh, relaxed uh, in this situation, it's not possible to be relaxed like for uh, 100%, but we want to calm people. One way to do that is playing all the new songs that seem to pop up about the war every single day online. They're often darkly funny and blunt. So uh, he has done this song uh, named Die, 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 Putin uh, with a a funny horrors. Die, 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 Putin. (laughs) Now we have war time so we can air uh, whatever we want. Putin (laughs) We might have to bleep that. Why? Americans... Uh, <laughs> this rule does not apply to NPR. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, but do, do Americans uh, know what this uh, means? Somebody will. As Taras does his show, a small staff of reporters clacks away on keyboards in a room just across the hall. 
They're writing the upcoming newscast, which tops the hour. Irina Shubinets, one of the lead newscasters, does a final check of the copy. There's so much news now, it's changing constantly. She walks over to the studio and takes her seat less than a minute to air. And then... Кількість жертв обстрілу Миколаївської ОДА знову зросла. Майже 600 тисяч українців повернулися додому. The top stories this hour, shelling in the south, alleged Russian war crimes, and aid for internally displaced people. Journalists are like firemen. They need to be ready at any time if it's a war or whatever. Irina tells us through our interpreter that doing the newscasts is calming in a way. Being able to curate and take in the latest updates helps her deal with the anxiety. When the war started the first day when I came to work, um, we had this discussion. It seemed like this is the end, like this is the end of the world. So how we're going to report on this? Arena says they realized that they were going to report on death, maybe even of people they knew personally. The day we visit, five weeks into the war, it happens. A cameraman Arena had worked with before was killed in the east. And she reported on it. I was almost crying, and I even had goosebumps on, on, on my skin. To Ross and his co-host, they knew not to joke after that. The war is personal for everyone. One of the station's hosts joined the Ukrainian army and is on the front line. Taras has family in Russian-controlled territory. Everybody, I think everybody in this country has some stories right now about deaths, about fighting, about... Uh, uh, losing their uh, houses, it's uh, such a bad things uh, are happening right now. Like Arena, he struggled at first. They both told us they needed anti-anxiety medicine. But as the weeks have gone on, he's adjusted. And he sees his mission right now is helping his listeners try to get to that same place. I want my listeners to feel a little bit better right now. And sometimes that's talking about something else, sometimes that's talking about the war, but in a, in and, a joking uh, way. Not every person uh, in this country um, goes to psychologists, goes to church uh, where they can feel safe. Uh, but m- many, many guys are listening to me. And I want to be like uh, some kind of uh, psychologist, some kind of priest right now. Yeah. I'm not, but I want to be. <laughs> that was NPR's Scott Detrow reporting in Lviv. Scott will be guest hosting All Things Considered from Ukraine all next week. A new Florida law now has its first lawsuit. The law bans classroom instruction about sexual orientation and gender identity from kindergarten through third grade. Critics believe it's written specifically to discourage any mention of LGBTQ topics in school at any age. They call it the Don't Say Gay Law, and gay rights groups are now suing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to block it. Earlier today, I spoke with Florida's Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Can you start by talking about the goal of this bill? What is the intent? First and foremost, the bill is about not just protecting parents' rights, but empowering parents. This bill is about three fundamental things. 
It is about making sure that school districts will not have the ability to shield or hide information from parents about services offered to their children. Secondly, the bill prohibits classroom instruction about sexual orientation or gender identity in grades K through three. It does not reference discussions or uh, questions that students may have. It is specific about classroom instruction. And then finally, it ensures that whenever a questionnaire or health screening is given to any student in the K through three grades, parents will receive it first and they'll provide permission for the school to administer said questionnaires. So children ask adults and really their teachers a lot of questions about life and things like why does their friend have two moms or two dads? Does that interaction require mandated state intervention under this law? Any number of hypothetical scenarios were asked at every stage of this bill. And it's been very clear that there is nothing in the legislation. There is no attempt to silence a child's question or to silence or erase a child's history. They have two moms and they want to share it in a family tree or they want to talk about it. Nothing will preclude that child from sharing their family history, their questions. This is solely about classroom instruction, curriculum that will be embedded with topics that we feel are best left for older grades. We feel that they're best left, quite frankly, to the family in the home. We have been speaking with teachers and parents in Florida, and I'd like to listen to one of the teachers our reporters spoke with. Uh, This is Clinton McCracken. He's a middle school teacher. Um, He teaches art in Orlando, and he is gay. This is a created culture war from him so that he can achieve his political ambitions. That's all this is. So I'm not teaching kids how to be gay in my classroom. But I'll tell you what I am doing. I am trying with all my power to teach kids to be okay with who they are. So the him he's referring to there is the governor. And I'm wondering how you respond to that. Well, I'd respond by telling him, read the bill. It has nothing to do with middle school. This is grades K through three. The bill sponsors explicitly say that they intend for this to apply to students all the way up to high school. No, no. The bill is very specific about prohibiting classroom instruction grades K through three. There's no denying it. Again, read the bill. Uh, However, as it relates to the higher grades, it says as age appropriate, developmentally appropriate. And so I think that when you look at age appropriateness, whether it's regarding Holocaust curriculum, human trafficking or other curriculum, I think we all agree that it should be age appropriate. So on a slightly different aspect of this, Are you concerned about the safety and mental health of the students who fear what will come as a result of this bill? Just to give you some context, the Trevor Project found last year that 42 percent of LGBTQ students have considered attempting suicide. And in Florida, the Gay, Lesbian and Straight Education Network found that 10 percent of students said they were victims of physical assault because of how students viewed their sexuality or gender identity. We're not concerned about this creating a potential negative or a potential harmful situation because we made provisions for, for instances, where the teacher, the counselor may feel that that child may be in danger of neglect, abandonment or abuse. That is contemplated in the bill. Let me turn you to the potential economic consequences of the law. Disney has said it's going to do everything in its power to get this law overturned. Do you have any concerns about picking a fight with one of your state's largest employers, one that brings in millions of tourists and billions of dollars to your state? Uh, Not at all. We will never back down from a fight, especially when it's a matter of principle. And when you look at Disney, when you look at where they have come on this position, on this issue, they have kowtowed to an agenda that we believe is a radical agenda. And for them to say they're going to work to uh, repeal this bill, well, good luck with that. Florida Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a great day. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, lawyers are making closing arguments in the federal trial over an alleged plot to kidnap Michigan's governor. That story is still ahead. In business news, Skippy Foods is recalling more than 9,000 cases of peanut butter. That includes shipments that were sent to Massachusetts. The company says some jars from its plant protein and reduced fat lines may contain stainless steel fragments from a piece of manufacturing equipment. Customers can return the product to the store where it was purchased or contact Skippy's customer service. You can see the full list of affected products on the company's website. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by April 18th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. Wall Street has started up a second quarter up. The Dow rose 0.40%, 140 points, to close at 34,818. S&P gained 0.34% to finish the day at 4546. The Nasdaq gained 0.29% to end the session at 14,262. Marketplace has all the details coming up just over an hour at 6.30. The forecast is next. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Some bits of sunshine out there right now, but look for clouds overnight tonight. Maybe some rain early on, lows in the mid-30s. For tomorrow, sunny and dry, highs in the mid-50s. Sunday should be the grayer of the two days. Lots of clouds, maybe some showers, highs just about 50. 54 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Zoom, used by half a million businesses. The platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Kelsey Snell. And I'm Elsa Chang. In Grand Rapids today, a jury heard closing arguments in a federal trial over an alleged plot to kidnap Michigan's governor. Prosecutors say the four defendants were furious over Gretchen Whitmer's policies to slow the spread of COVID-19. Defense attorneys say the men were entrapped by a network of FBI informants. Michigan Radio's Brett Dahlberg reports. The prosecution spent weeks calling dozens of witnesses to lay out their case. They say the four men on trial conspired to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer after she imposed COVID restrictions in March of 2020. Prosecutors say they wanted to send a message not just to Whitmer, but to governors of other states. They wanted to show governors they called tyrannical that abuses of power could be met with violence. The prosecution says there was a detailed plot to abduct Whitmer and either kill her or take her on a boat to the middle of Lake Michigan and strand her there. They say the men planned to storm Whitmer's home, disable her security, and blow up a bridge to slow the police response. It's one of the most significant alleged domestic terror plots in recent history. Jeffrey Swartz is a professor at Western Michigan University's law school. He fears the message a not guilty verdict might send. Michigan will become ground zero for uh, militias, 
and for planning of these type of attacks and for executing those type of attacks. Mona Lena Crook chairs the Women and Politics PhD program at Rutgers University. She says this alleged plot might be especially striking, but the ideas the men expressed are not isolated to Michigan. And she says it's not surprising that the alleged plot targeted a female politician. The alleged plot is is really symptomatic of rising hostility. Uh, we're seeing it more openly expressed in American politics, um, and it's really been on the rise over the last uh, last few years. For women, they're often more likely um, to be attacked. The men on trial now are just some of the 14 who were arrested and accused of being part of the plot. Others are charged in state court. Two have already pleaded guilty to federal crimes, and they testified against the four on trial now. But defense attorneys say it was all talk, that their clients never actually planned to carry out any of the actions they discussed. They say a sprawling network of FBI informants and undercover agents lured the men into discussing the topics they're now on trial for. They argue it's entrapment of those who weren't ever intending to break the law. Whitmer says she hasn't been following the trial closely, but she can't help but notice some of the news coverage. I see the headlines and I see all the kind of some of the depraved things that were talked about and, and it's jarring. Whitmer says she's still the subject of hateful rhetoric every day. She says political disagreements should be settled at the ballot box, not through threats of violence. For NPR News, I'm Brett Dahlberg in Grand Rapids. Going to school today probably felt a little different for many students in Tokyo, Japan. Dress codes with roots that go back decades were just overhauled by about 200 public schools in the metropolitan area. The rules dictated hairstyle, the length of socks, underwear color, and other aspects of a student's appearance. After years of debates surrounding the dress codes, officials repealed five of the rules. Hanako Montgomery has been following the story for Vice World News. She joins me now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me on. So first of all, tell us about the five rules that were repealed in the Tokyo municipality today. Uh, So uh, now students no longer have to dye their natural hair color black. Uh, They will also be allowed to have a two-block hairstyle, which in Japan is short on the sides and the back, longer on the top. There also won't be a rule on underwear color. So previously you had some schools that instituted a white-only underwear rule, uh, but now students can wear underwear of different color. And on, on top of those three rules, students can now attend school while being suspended. So they don't just have to stay at home, but they can actually go to school with their classmates. And uh, last but definitely not least, uh, any language that describes students um, having a sort of a typical way of dress or a typical way of acting will be banned. So that was sort of in a way to kind of enforce those rules and have an ambiguous reasoning behind these restrictions. So this isn't just you know a situation where it was rules about outward appearance, things like underwear color that somebody wouldn't see normally or, you know, the way people talk about clothing is, is changing too. So it sounds like it's more of a cultural shift. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, allowing students kind of more freedom, you know, in terms of what color they choose for their undergarments signals that a real shift is being made here and more acceptance, more uh, lenience in terms of what students should and shouldn't be allowed to do. So how are people feeling? What's the atmosphere like? Yeah, so, you know, this change has sort of been months in the making. So the atmosphere surrounding these draconian school rules, um, otherwise known as buraku kosoku in Japanese, it's... I would say one of joy. It's one of welcomed acceptance. You know, these rules have been problematic for years now, and we're finally seeing some change in the most populous 
prefecture of Japan. You know, I know Japanese law makes it more difficult to talk to current students who would be minors, but you spoke to some young former public school students for your reporting with Vice, and I'm wondering, what did you hear from them about the changes to the rules? Yeah, sure. So when I spoke to the former students of public high schools, they were so happy <laughs> that these rules were being changed, largely because it's it's kind of baffling to hear the justification for some of these restrictions. I mean, to a student, it just sort of seems like an imposition on their freedom of expression, on their freedom of speech. So Which is very having, important as a teenager. Yes, exactly. I mean, a school is where you kind of first understand your identity, right? Where you're exploring different things and you're seeing what really fits you. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the former students that I spoke to had attended private middle schools, and they recalled really strict regulations. So one student I spoke to, her bang length was restricted, or, you know, some students had to tie their hair up into a ponytail. But then at some other institutions, you have banned ponytails because they could sexually excite male students because you can see the nape of their neck. So I'm wondering, why is this happening now? If this has been a part of the Japanese school system for decades, why is this change happening now? Yeah, so perhaps one of the biggest catalysts for change is, uh, so a high school student in the southern Osaka prefecture of Japan sued her school in 2017 for mental distress. Uh, She was told to dye her naturally brown hair black, or she would face expulsion. And, you know, she followed the school rules at first, but she eventually stopped, which led to her institution removing her desk from her classroom, erasing her name from rosters. And in February 2021, a court finally came to the decision and they ordered the local government to pay her around 3000 US dollars in damages. But they still ruled that the school had a right to impose these hair regulations on her. So is there momentum in other parts of Japan for schools to change similar rules? Yes, yes. So after that case was widely reported in Japan and Western media, even before the Tokyo Prefectural Board banning these five school rules, you had a number of city and prefectures coming to the decision that these rules were no longer needed and that they were imposing a lot of restriction on student life. That's Hanako Montgomery. She's a Japan-based reporter for Vice World News. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. For a sense of one community's plans for this Ramadan, we hear from Minneapolis, which has been working to be more inclusive of Muslim residents. Listen to that story tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition, on your radio or on your smart speaker. This is NPR News. And coming up on WBUR, as all things considered, Hungarians head to the polls Sunday in what experts are calling the most important election in a generation. The authoritarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, sometimes called Viktator, is hoping for a fourth consecutive term. Clouds went out in the evening and for the first part of tonight, then clearing skies overnight, leading to a bright day tomorrow. Lots of sunshine, highs in the mid-50s. Sunday should be cloudy with a chance of afternoon showers, highs just about 50 degrees. Red Sox were trounced by Tampa Bay 9-3 to today in preseason play. Celtics play the Pacers tonight. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or if you have a smart speaker, ask it to play WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. 
I think that in many ways, whether or not Mariupol falls, it's not really the point. This brutal campaign has already sent a message to Ukraine and to the world, and especially, definitely, to the people of Mariupol about just how far Putin is willing to go. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is celebrating the monthly jobs report that shows employers added 431,000 jobs in March. Over the course of my presidency, our recovery has now created 7.9 million jobs. More jobs created over the first 14 months of any presidency in any term ever. But he says even though a record number of jobs were created, his administration still has work to do to get prices under control. He says Russian President Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine has pushed up gas and food prices all over the world, which is true, though inflation was already stubbornly high before the invasion as the economy recovered from the pandemic. Separately, the Labor Department says the unemployment rate fell to 3.6 percent. That's the lowest rate since the pandemic started two years ago. And despite Russia's war, supply issues and and the pandemic, employers have added 400,000 jobs a month for the past 11 months in a row. In a closely watched vote, Amazon workers on Staten Island in New York have elected to form a union. Gwen Hogan from member station WNYC has more. Nearly 5,000 workers cast ballots, and by the end of the National Labor Relations Board count, the Amazon Labor Union was up by more than 500 votes. Outside the office where the counting took place, workers waited in excitement and popped a bottle of champagne when their victory was official. The Amazon Labor Union is an upstart group of current and former employees not affiliated with any pre-existing union. Its president, Chris Smalls, thanked Jeff Bezos, saying while he was up in space, they were signing workers up for the union. The Staten Island warehouse is now the first unionized facility in Amazon's history. For NPR News, I'm Gwen Hogan in New York. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow up 139, the Nasdaq up 40, S&P 500 up 15. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The remains of a World War II airman from Revere will return home tonight after arriving on a flight at Logan Airport. It comes 78 years after the airman was killed when his bomber was shot down. WBUR's Dave Faniff has more. Army Air Force's Staff Sergeant Charles McMacken was the bombardier of a bomber targeting oil fields in Romania. His plane was shot down and his remains were found by a farmer who buried them. The remains were finally identified in 2017. Revere Mayor Brian Arrigo says McMacken's story gives us a chance to reflect on the values we hold dear as Americans. To think about a young man from the city of Riviera who was nurtured in a tight-knit community in a neighborhood, really rose to the occasion in some of our darkest hours, and then for him to be able to come back home is really so special. A procession will stop at Revere City Hall around 11 tonight for a ceremony honoring Sergeant McMacken. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Faniff. More changes in the works for the region's lobster fishermen. Beginning next year, lobster boats that operate in federal waters will be required to have tracking devices. Regulators voted this week to make the change. The devices will record the location of boats while fishing and provide regulators with a better idea of where lobsters are located. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker is considering whether to sign a spending bill that would include extending authorization for outdoor dining 
and takeout cocktails in restaurants in the state for one more year. State lawmakers sent the roughly $1.6 billion proposal to the governor yesterday. The package also directs millions to financial assistance for struggling renters and requires the state's pension board to divest from Russian companies. Roughly half the spending package will be covered by federal reimbursement. With about eight months left in Charlie Baker's term, the chief of staff has announced she's leaving her job. Kristen Lepore has been with the administration since 2015, became chief of staff in 2017. She has not said what her next career move will be. Baker's senior advisor, Tim Buckley, will take over as the chief of staff. In the forecast, could have a little rain tonight, then partly cloudy skies, breezy, not too chilly, about 35 overnight. Tomorrow, generally sunny, highs near 52. Sunday should be on the gray side and damp, mostly cloudy, breezy, the chance of rain Sunday afternoon, highs around 50. 54 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. America's population isn't growing as fast as it used to. Last year marked the lowest growth pace in American history. In fact, growth has been leveling off since at least the 2010s. Derek Thompson is a staff writer at The Atlantic. In an article published earlier this week, he argues that a combination of low births, high deaths, and heavy restrictions on immigration are harmful to the country. So I asked him why it matters that the U.S. isn't growing as fast as it used to. First, we want America to grow fast because of what it means for the future of America. A larger America is stronger geopolitically. We can stand up to countries like, let's say, Russia or even China. Second, I think it's important to say that we should want America to grow because all the reasons that America is not growing today are bad for Americans alive today. We should want births to increase, not because it's just fantastic for people to have five, six, seven kids, even if they don't want to, but rather because we should want parents to have the number of children they want to have. But America, which offers the smallest amount of support for children of just about any OECD country, cashes out as parents having significantly fewer children than they want to have. That's bad. The fact that a million Americans have died of the pandemic, that's bad. The fact that immigration has crashed in the last six years is also bad for America. It sounds like a lot of what you're talking about here is a significant change in the way Americans experience the America that we know. That's an interesting way to put it. I think that Americans are used to an America that grows. But we are looking at a future of America where births are declining, deaths are increasing, and immigration is falling as well. This could give us an America that we're not used to, a shrinking or stagnant America where if you think the culture wars are bad today because of the perception of a zero-sum country, just imagine how bad the culture wars are going to be when America stops growing, 
where one state growing is happening at the expense of another state shrinking. I'm glad you mentioned the difference geographically because I thought that was an interesting part of your piece was that, you know, certain communities in the U.S. are growing slower than others. And so this isn't just a whole picture change to the U.S. This is, you know, regional changes, right? Sure. You definitely see that there are certain parts of the country that are declining in population and certain parts of the country that are growing in population because of where Americans are moving within the country. So the Midwest seems to be shrinking, the Northeast seems to be stagnant, and then Florida and Texas are absolutely booming. So we are seeing both regional changes and we're seeing national changes. So what happens and how quickly does it happen if nothing changes in the U.S.? Well, I think there's a couple things that really have to change. I would love to see public policy become more family friendly. I don't see any reason why this should be a partisan issue. Second, I understand why immigration is a third rail of American politics. But in the biggest picture, immigration is a geopolitical cheat code for the U.S. If we want to supercharge science and innovation, we should recognize that immigration will get us there. So why are we in the process of allowing immigration to crash when we recognize that immigration has all of these benefits? I think we need a moment of sanity in this country to drive out of the demographic danger zone and craft policies that allow families to have the number of children they say they actually want and to increase immigration rates in this country. A country that stops growing is a zero-sum country, and zero-sum countries lead to zero-sum games. Zero-sum games lead to culture wars. That's Derek Thompson, a staff writer for The Atlantic. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. On Sunday, voters in Hungary will go to the polls in what's being called the most important election there in a generation. For the past 12 years, Prime Minister Viktor Orban has steadily chipped away at his country's democratic institutions. This time, the opposition has unified around a religious conservative candidate in the hopes of finally defeating Orban. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports. It's an afternoon mass at Budapest's Mother Church of Our Lady of the Assumption, just days before Sunday's election, and Father Zoltan Ostier holds out his arms and asks his congregation to pray for a good outcome. We cannot elect a representative who was unworthy of us, he says. Only someone who protects the hierarchy of God, homeland, and family. This is a Catholic church, and it's not clear whether he's talking about three-term Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who used to be an atheist but converted to Christianity after he became a politician, or opposition candidate Peter Marquezai, a lifelong Catholic who has joined with left-wing parties to try and defeat Orban. But then Father Ostier makes it clear. The candidate who has formed an alliance with the devil just to topple the current government is not, he says, a true Christian. In his 12 years leading Hungary, Viktor Orban has not only gained the support of conservative Christians through his campaign against the LGBTQ community, he's also managed to consolidate the public forum that debates these issues by ensuring that nearly all media in the country is under his party's influence. Despite this, polls suggest Orban and his party are facing the biggest threat to their grip on power. And the face of that threat is Peter Marquezai. Speaking in Berlin last month, he called beating Orban mission impossible that he remains hopeful. Uh, it is a miracle in itself. It's a sign of the resilience of the Hungarian people that after 12 years of brainwashing, there are still you know, about 50% of the people in Hungary who want a regime change. It's uh, a fantastic uh, starting point already. 
For the first time, a coalition of Hungary's six major opposition parties from the left and right have united behind this mayor of a small city in southeastern Hungary, hopeful his conservative credentials are enough to oust Orban. Something else giving them hope is that Orban's troubling foreign policy is now in the spotlight since Russia invaded Ukraine. For years, Orban has built ties with autocrats like Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese leader Xi Jinping while rejecting liberal democratic principles of the West. Analyst Gabor Zhuri says Sunday's election is also a test of Orban's worldview. The kind of Western liberal model is failing with its multiculturalism, with its openness, and that the nationalist and the culturally conservative societies in the East are uh, much more coherent, they are much more united, and they are more focused on, on the issues that matter uh, for the future. They are better at managing their economies, their, their societies, they are um, better at suppressing the kind of dissent that disintegrates society. But Orban's view that Hungary needs to follow what he believes is a political and cultural model that's winning doesn't ring true for many young Hungarians like Anna Ach, who works as a translator in Budapest. I don't like the attitude, I don't like the program, I don't like how they handle social issues. Um, the politics is not really inclusive, which would be very important for me. I like to see something more Western. Och says she's also sick of the corruption. There are allegations that Orban's friends have benefited from big government contracts for construction projects like soccer stadiums and railways. But churchgoer Gabor Lenke says these accusations amount to what he calls fake news. If Orban's stealing so much, why is there construction all over Budapest, all these churches, museums, sports stadiums? He's also handing out family subsidies. If his party manages to do all that and steal some on the side, let them steal it. Lenke, Ach, and millions of other Hungarian voters will weigh in on all of this on Sunday. Rob Schmitz, NPR News. Budapest. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Donald Trump's endorsement has been a golden ticket for many Republicans seeking to stand out in contested primaries. But after 2020, he's embraced more long-shot candidates and is seeking to oust incumbents that did not overturn his defeat. That brings risk for Republicans in states like Georgia, where Trump held a rally last weekend. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler brings us more. Wow, that's a big crowd of people. When Donald Trump took the stage at a windy rally 70 miles northeast of Atlanta, he promised Republicans would win big in November. But first... We have a big primary coming out. Right here in your state, we're going to throw out a very, very sad situation that took place here. Rhino Governor Brian Kemp. The governor's race is one of seven in Georgia, where Trump has endorsed insurgent candidates to unseat incumbents, or stamp his brand of conservatism on the race, from U.S. Senate down to the relatively obscure insurance commissioner. Most of these candidates are running to challenge Kemp, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and their allies after they certified President Joe Biden's narrow victory in 2020, like Kemp's chief challenger, former Senator David Perdue. Let's get one thing straight. Let me be very clear, very clear. In the state of Georgia, thanks to Brian Kemp, our elections in 2020 were absolutely stolen. They were not, and were verified by three separate counts of the results. 
But unlike past elections, where Trump-endorsed candidates have more easily dispatched their opponents, this time, Georgia Republicans seem less sure. As governor, Brian Kemp's record on issues like abortion, voting laws, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the economy are about as conservative as it gets. Brian Robinson, a Republican strategist in Georgia, says the real-world impact of how these incumbents have governed will stand out more. You can't give them a half story because they know the full story. It's got to match up with what they already believe to some degree. That's why at a Kemp event in Northeast Georgia recently, voters like John Ford say they can support incumbents, but also still like Trump. He was the president. Brian Kemp is our governor. He's my governor and he has my vote. And I feel like David Perdue running as a primary candidate is divisive to the cause. We need all the help we can get pulling in the same direction. Purdue lags Kemp in fundraising and polling, and former football star Herschel Walker running for Senate is the only clear frontrunner among Trump's Georgia picks. That leads to a concern among Republicans here that the primary infighting could harm them in November, especially in a state that will likely be decided by razor-thin margins. It's not just Georgia where Trump's picks have struggled. In Pennsylvania, Senate candidate Sean Parnell dropped out last November after abuse allegations. And last week, Trump unendorsed Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks for the Senate race there after Brooks' campaign stumbled in the polls. Even Donald Trump seemed to leave the door open that his endorsements wouldn't be as successful as they once were in an interview with Real America's Voice. These are not sure things. And if I lose one along the way, which you have to, right, they're going to say this was a humiliating experience. And at the rally in Georgia, he reminded his candidates why he came to town in the first place. Mr. Future Governor, I hope, David, you're going to be the governor. I just wasted a hell of a lot of time here tonight. Georgia's primary election is May 24th. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the founding members of Red Hot Chili Peppers talk about their new album. Red Sox were topped by Tampa Bay today in spring training play in Florida 9-3. Tonight, the Celtics and Indiana Pacers go at it at the Garden, 7.30 game time. It's 5.48. The news never sleeps, and we don't either. I'm Rupa Shanoi, WBUR's Morning Edition host. Our team is up all night, so we can tell you what happened while you were sleeping. Plus, we'll have interviews with local newsmakers and those hidden gems. The stories that bring a smile to your face. Join me weekdays for Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Let's make mornings better. If you were in New England 25 years ago today, you might remember a storm that was no joke. Today marks 25 years since the April Fool's Day blizzard of 1997. It dumped 25 inches in Boston, 33 inches of snow in Worcester. The forecast for tonight, 34 inches of snow. Nope just joking. Partly cloudy tonight, down around 35. Tomorrow, sunny in the low 50s. Sunday, cloudy, damp, right about 50 degrees. 54 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. Benjamin Zander leads Mahler's Third Symphony with mezzo Susan Platts on April 8th. BostonPhil.org. And Davis Malm, tax lawyers committed to your most taxing matters. Learn more at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. 
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep. NPR News is dedicated to bearing witness to the war in Ukraine. Our journalists are on the ground bringing you the voices of people at the heart of the story. It's work that takes resources to do well and takes resources to do safely. It happens because of listeners who support this NPR station. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Anthony Kiedis and Flea have known each other since they were in high school. Today, they're both in their late 50s. In the decades that they've been friends, they've won six Grammy Awards, been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they just got a star on Hollywood Boulevard as lead singer and bassist of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. In 1990, when we were rehearsing at the Alleyway Rehearsal Studios in North Hollywood next to a grimy, greasy hamburger stand, and these young shirtless boys were so raw and powerful on this little tweaker stage in the valley. I was driving down Sunset Boulevard. I started thinking about my life energy, you know, the core of the thing that we have that keeps us going, the vitality. What is it? What is that thing? And then when I started thinking about it, I started going, and that happened in my head. The same lineup that made Suck My Kiss over 30 years ago, among many other hits, has reunited for a new Red Hot Chili Peppers album. It's called Unlimited Love, and it's out today. My first question for Anthony Kiedis and Flea was, whose idea was it to make another record? Kiedis answered first. I mean, we don't really have to be told to make a record. That's just what we do. And the energy of the the world and the return of John Frusciante, um, it all kind of indicated that it was time to make a record. This is our life's mission. You speak about Anthony and I being friends for so long and us getting the star in Hollywood Boulevard and stuff. Like, you know, we've been running around on that street since we were kids, you know? Like, when I was a little kid, I used to sit on... Hollywood Boulevard with a kazoo and another friend on trash can lid and put out a hat to get money. Really? Yeah, man. Huh. Day in, day out. And and um, it's, you know, a real honor to, to be a part of something that we grew up on. You know, like Flea said, this is what we love to do. And I will say to Flea, you brought the funk, Holmes. You brought it every day. <laughs> Thanks. Well, let's talk about some of the tracks on this album. Because, you know, in the press materials, you call it the sum of our lives, which encompasses a lot. You have had very eventful lives. So point us to a song on this record where we hear the threads of your lives. For me, um, this is Anthony's best work. But when Anthony sings, you know, we have a song called Aquatic Mouth Dance. Looking back at the years gone by when the message changed my life. It, it kind of goes through us growing up in Hollywood and stuff and all these sort of wild, um, you know, the, the colors of the words together forming this narrative that brings back for me, like, you know, talking about going to the Starwood and seeing X, like, a, you know, an L.A. band that we really loved a lot. 
Um, and that, I feel a real threat of our lives through that. What do you think about that, Anthony? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is some narratives going on. There's another song called Here Ever After, which is very much uh, the landscape of Hollywood growing up. Interestingly enough, I, I didn't get a lot of feedback from my brethren, uh, lyrically speaking, until one day John was doing some guitar overdubs. And he's like, wow, I just, I finally read the, the lyrics to Here Ever After as I was going through the overdubs. And he's like, it is an exact portrait of my life growing up in Hollywood. Hmm. So John, who's a few years younger than us, moved to Hollywood from the deep San Fernando Valley. And he kind of, you know, moved into like, the back of a Chevron station. He had no money, he had no means, until we kind of gathered our resources and made our way. When I listen to this track, I feel like I could be putting a CD into my CD player in high school, in the bedroom where I grew up. Like, how do you think about being true to the sound that Red Hot Chili Peppers is known for, in tension with the evolution that happens in any artist's life. Um, yeah, to me, those ideas are not really in conflict. It's like you're loyal to the spirit that, that drives you, and you're loyal to, you know, showing up on time to, to work it out with the boys, and you're loyal to paying attention to everything around you. And part of being in the Red Hot Chili Peppers has always been, we're open to anything. Everything we've ever done, every lesson we've ever learned, musical and otherwise, is part of who we are. Every progression that we've had as artists is always because we're just trying to get better. Flea, you released a memoir a few years ago called Acid for the Children. And in a conversation you had on this program with Audie Cornish, you talked about the relationship that the two of you have. You called Anthony a chosen brother, and, and you went into a little more detail. Let's listen to this. We push each other's buttons in ways that are almost like, you know, when you have a troubled relationship with parents, even as adults, and, yeah. you know, you get together for Thanksgiving, and they say one thing that might seem innocuous to someone who's not, you know, familiar with the relationship, but to you, it crushes your heart and sends you into a raw, vulnerable frenzy. We have that kind of relationship. So how's that going these days? <laughs> he's not wrong. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's not wrong when he says that, but it's, I think, you know, the, the difference is the chosen part. Like when you're, when you're with a family who's pushing your buttons, it's like you feel a little bit trapped. But we elected to have our buttons pushed and, and sometimes it's unpleasant in the moment, but it's also uh, this person in my life who really knows how to get under my skin. So maybe I should look a little closer at that. Hmm. It, it's also very productive. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a healthy, in a competitive sense, you know, and I, and I see that in many creative ensembles where, you know, one person is able to bring something and the other person's like, that's pretty amazing. I better, I better try to also bring something amazing. And at the end of the day, I think it is all love and, and it just has many different faces. All love and ever evolving. Please evolving. I stopped like 20 years ago, but. <laughs> 
you gotta know Ari, like in about an hour, we're gonna be at rehearsal and staring each other down. <laughs> Anthony Kiedis and Flea, thank you so much for joining us today and good luck with the tour. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having us, Ari. A lazy rain am I The skies refuse to cry Cremation takes its piece of your supply. The night is dressed like noon. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. After a fickle day with sun and showers taking turns, we've got clouds and maybe some showers overnight tonight. Clearing skies by tomorrow morning, though. Lows about 35 degrees. Tomorrow's sunshine through the day, warming to about 54 degrees. Then for Sunday, some showers during the afternoon. Clouds pretty much all day long Sunday. Highs right about 50. Tonight, the Celtics and Indiana Pacers go at it at the Garden. 7.30 game time. Tampa Bay topped the Red Sox today in spring training play in Florida, 9-3. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Chevalier Theatre in Medford Square. Presenting The Piano Guys, Tuesday, September 13th. Tickets and info at ChevalierTheater.com. I'm senior business reporter Zeninjor Enwameka, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In a stunning breakthrough, Amazon workers at a Staten Island warehouse have voted to form a union. It'll be the first unionized Amazon facility in the country. To the first union in American history. What this particular labor action could mean for others coming up. It's Friday, April 1st. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the risk of cyber war and how the U.S. might respond to attacks on America's infrastructure. The author of a new novel, Let's Not Do That Again, says he draws inspiration from his time as a speechwriter as he explores political dynamics in families. And this evening on Marketplace, Mark saw big gains in the business services sector from accountants to consultants. We'll take a look at the factors behind the job boom. It's 601 News Headlines and the positive numbers from Wall Street are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is trying to navigate a delicate line on the economy. Earlier today at the White House, he touted the latest jobs numbers while acknowledging many Americans are facing higher food and gas prices. 
NPR's Asma Khalid has more. The president spoke of record job creation, record unemployment declines, and record wage gains seen during the first 14 months of his presidency. But many Americans do not perceive the economy to be as strong as President Biden suggests it is. For months, polling has shown that economic concerns are top of mind for voters. They're especially concerned about inflation. Even though we created a record number of jobs, we know, I know, that this job is not finished. We need to do more to get prices under control. The president pinned the blame on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And while it certainly has led to an uptick in food and gas prices, inflation predates the war. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. Russia is now demanding foreign energy customers pay for supplies in rubles. But as NPR's Stranica Kisses reports from Zuschaf, Poland, the country saying no. Poland's largest state-owned gas company says Russia's Gazprom is legally bound to honor the contracts. But if Putin insists, there is a way to bypass his demand. Energy policy expert Agata Wosko-Trakota says countries can set up accounts at Gazprom's bank, which is not under sanctions. The bank exchanges the country's currency into rubles. So there is a trick to, you know, be paid in rubles for Russia, but uh, on the other hand, European companies could still be paying in currency that is agreed in their contracts. Poland has vowed to cut off all Russian fuel imports by the end of the year. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Zeszów, Poland. The Department of Transportation is announcing new fuel economy standards for cars and light trucks. They're stricter year over year than the requirements the Trump administration had implemented. More from NPR's David Gura. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has updated what are called CAFE standards, first put in place in 1975, designed to reduce fuel consumption. The new rules build upon a proposal released in August after a review called for by President Biden. They'll require car makers to make vehicles that are 8% more fuel efficient, starting with 2024 models. In the future, they'll require even more fuel efficiency. The announcement comes at a time when gasoline prices have surged to a record high, not adjusted for inflation. The administration says this change will have environmental benefits. It'll cut down greenhouse gas emissions, but it will also have economic benefits. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Shares of stocks related to the nation's home building sector have largely lagged the broader market this year. Those stocks hit by a variety of factors, including rising mortgage rates, where some Wall Street analysts expect the spring home buying season could help lift some of those shares. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 139 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Lemonster is preparing to honor the life of a fallen Marine captain. 27-year-old Ross Reynolds was one of four Marines killed when their Osprey aircraft crashed during NATO exercises in Norway two weeks ago. In a Facebook post to residents, Lemonster Mayor Dean Mazzarella says Reynolds' body is set to arrive at Logan Airport tomorrow afternoon and a procession will follow. We are expected to return back to Lemonster between 2.30 and 3.30. Bring your flags, signs, whatever you'd like. Please uh, show great support. This is so important to the family. A candlelight vigil will be held Sunday with a public wake on Monday. Both will be at City Hall in Lemister. Funeral services will be Tuesday. The Boston Symphony Orchestra is joining musicians around the world by dedicating performances to the people of Ukraine. WBR's Andrea Shea has more. Audience members stood as the BSO and Tanglewood Festival Chorus began last night's concert with the Ukrainian National Anthem. The piece was followed by Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, a pacifist work commissioned 60 years ago. 
you know, the piece speaks to the horror and senselessness of war. Gail Samuel is the BSO's president and CEO. So I think really gave a moment for comfort and in this moment, we hope, awareness. The musicians repeated their expressions of peace this afternoon at Symphony Hall and will again tomorrow night at 8 p.m. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. The city of Boston has new restrictions on protests that target private homes. Mayor Michelle Wu's office said today the mayor signed an ordinance yesterday to make the change. The new rules ban protests outside homes from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. The city can fine violators. Supporters say the rules change was needed because early morning protests outside Mayor Wu's Roslindale home disturbed neighbors. Detractors say the measure impinges on free speech. A heads up if you're planning to ride the red line this weekend. Shuttle buses will replace trains between Alewife and Harvard tomorrow and Sunday because of track work. The green line in Boston remains shut down between Government Center and North Station. That's for inspections and debris removal following last weekend's parking garage collapse near Haymarket. Could have a little bit of rain tonight, then partly cloudy skies, breezy, not too cool, just about 35. Tomorrow, generally sunny, highs near 52. Sunday should be on the gray side and damp, too. Mostly cloudy Sunday, breezy, the chance of rain with highs around 50. 54 degrees in Boston at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Kelsey Snell in Washington. On Staten Island in New York, a historic win for an upstart union. Workers at a massive Amazon warehouse have voted to join the Amazon Labor Union. It's the first Amazon facility in the U.S. to unionize. And organizers vow it won't be the last. NPR's Andrea Shu joins us now. Hi, Andrea. Hi. So let's start with just what makes this win so stunning. Well, no one expected this scrappy grassroots campaign to emerge victorious against the behemoth that is Amazon. You know, the Amazon labor union was not backed by traditional labor groups. It didn't have the kind of funding or organizing power that these campaigns often have. It was created by a warehouse supervisor named Chris Smalls after he was fired by Amazon two years ago, almost to this day. He had no union background. He raised money for the operation through GoFundMe. He spent many, many hours talking to workers at a bus stop, and Amazon executives were highly dismissive of him. So you can just imagine after a vote that went for the union by a pretty big margin, we're talking more than 500 votes, he's having his moment. To the first union in American history. Yeah! That's him popping the champagne outside the National Labor Relations Board office where the votes were counted. And um, here's more of what he had to say. This, this right here, um, this is going to be the, the catalyst for the revolution. That's exactly what this is. I just witnessed that. You know, this vote on Staten Island brings more than 8,000 people who work at the warehouse into the union. So Chris Smalls has pulled off what the formidable Teamsters union has been unable to do, organize at Amazon. Last year, the Teamsters vowed they were going to unionize Amazon workers coast to coast. And Amazon is an enormous company. So could you give us some context? How big a setback is this for Amazon? It's a really big setback. Amazon has spent millions of dollars on labor consultants to fight the union campaigns. 
They've held many, many mandatory meetings for workers, urging them to vote no. They took a pretty aggressive stance against the Amazon labor union. They had Chris Smalls and a couple other people arrested for trespassing while they were delivering food and other materials to the warehouse parking lot a couple months ago. You know, Amazon's work argument to workers is that they've already made Amazon a great place to work without the involvement of a union. And they do offer competitive pay. They offer generous benefits like health care coverage on day one for full-time employees and full tuition for college. But the work inside these warehouses is really grueling. You're on your feet for hours. You're doing very repetitive, very physically demanding work. And workers say the breaks are too short. And turnover at Amazon warehouses can top 100% a year. Oh, wow. So we should say that there was another vote count happening at the same time. Another Amazon mm -hmm. warehouse was voting on a union. Right. Kelsey, that was a do-over election at the warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. Right. So last year, yeah, workers voted more than two to one against joining a well-established national union. Those results were thrown out after the National Labor Relations Board ruled that Amazon had improperly interfered in that election. So workers voted again starting this past February by mail, and those votes were counted yesterday. The no's came out with a small lead, but there are more than 400 contested ballots. A hearing is going to be held to determine if any of those ballots will be opened and counted. So the best the Bessemer, Alabama vote could still go either way. So we'll hold off and wait for those results. But what comes now for the Staten Island workers? Well, you know, voting for the union is just the first step. It's a huge first step. But now comes the collective bargaining. The Amazon labor union says it wants higher wages, longer breaks, paid time off for injuries sustained on the job. And then there are some things that are very specific to New York, like they want a shuttle service to relieve some of the crowding on the public buses. So that's a lot to negotiate in the coming months, and it's likely to be a fight. Amazon has already said they were disappointed in the outcome of the elections, and they may file objections. But there's another election on Staten Island at the end of this month at an Amazon sorting center that has about 1,500 employees. Of course, the union now has a ton of momentum heading into that vote. Well, we'll be watching all of that. That's NPR's Andrea Shu. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Even before Russia invaded Ukraine, we had been hearing warnings that a cyber war could be coming very soon. And then last week, President Biden released a statement regarding cyber threats to the U.S., Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger explained the risk in no uncertain terms in a recent press briefing. She said the warnings are based on, quote, intelligence that the Russian government is exploring options for potential cyber attacks on critical infrastructure in the United States. Well, Ann Neuberger joins us now to talk about those threats. Welcome. Thank you so much, Elsa. It's great to be here with you. It's great to have you. I just want to first get some clarity on what level of threat we're talking about now, because Last week, you said that there is no certainty that there will be a cyber incident on critical infrastructure. Where are we on that risk as of today? We continue to see evolving intelligence, as we talked about last week, that the Russian government is exploring options. And we continue to, most importantly, double down in working closely with the private sector to share that sensitive threat intelligence and really try to create the urgency for action and the call to action to put in place the cybersecurity measures that would prevent that from being successful. Okay, well, I was wondering if you could give us maybe a concrete scenario, because this idea that there could be attacks on our basic infrastructure, it, it sounds pretty ominous. It's just so our listeners can get a sense, what types of attacks are we talking about here? 
To be clear, there is no specific intelligence about a specific planned attack. Okay. It is more that in the context of the current geopolitical environment, where there are heightened tensions, mm -hmm. in the context where we've seen Russia conduct cyber attacks in Ukraine, we felt the need to share that information and to really encourage companies, particularly critical infrastructure owners and operators, to take the steps they can take to prevent that from being successful, right. to lock those digital doors, as I've talked about. Right. I understand that you can't share intelligence that's talking about a specific attack that could be imminent now. You say that there's no such intelligence that reflects that. But could you paint us a picture, a scenario, a, a hypothetical? of what a cyber attack could look like on basic infrastructure were it to happen here in the U.S.? Yes. So I'll, I'll use a ransomware example, a criminal example, because it's more about, as you said, the impact. So last year, we saw a criminal ransomware actor disrupt fuel supplies all along the eastern seaboard, right? The colonial pipeline incident, mm -hmm. followed shortly thereafter by another ransomware attack against an operator of essentially a food processing operator. And in both of those cases, what the criminal cyber actor did was leverage, use vulnerabilities to get into the network, to migrate to the operational part of the network where they could disrupt actual operations. I'll note that in 2021 alone, we're aware of over a billion dollars in ransomware-associated payments. So when we talk about the kinds of cyber attacks we're most focused on working to prevent, it's disruption of critical services that Americans rely on. When it comes to prevention, let me ask you, the majority of the country's critical infrastructure, it's owned and operated by the private sector. Is that a problem? I mean, how much can the U.S. government tell these companies what to do in order to prevent cyber attacks? You're asking a core question, Elsa, because cybersecurity is a cost. For a number of sectors, the U.S. government does have the authority to mandate minimum cybersecurity measures, things like cyber alarm systems, things like exercising incident response plans, backing up data, ensuring that patches are done quickly because that ensures that technology vulnerabilities are closed mm -hmm. quickly. We've made significant progress in improving digital resilience in the last year. Right, and I suppose it's in these companies' self-interest to prevent cyber attacks. It is. You have been saying recently that there has been an uptick in bad actors scanning for vulnerable devices, that there's been other signs of intrusion in our networks. How common is that, that, that kind of scanning? Like, does it lead you to believe that Russia is indeed preparing to launch a cyber attack against the U.S. or the U.S.'s allies? Scanning systems for vulnerabilities is fairly common, whether criminal actors, Russian actors, actors who may seek to steal research and technology, as we've talked about other countries like China doing in the past. You have countries like North Korea, who often target banks to acquire hard currency as part of their sanctions evasion. So scanning systems to try to find vulnerabilities is fairly common. That being said, at a time of heightened geopolitical tensions, where we have an actor like Russia who has used cyber to coerce or destabilize or undermine, disrupt critical services, not in the United States, but in countries like Ukraine and Georgia, mm -hmm. we felt it was prudent to be open and transparent with the American people, to raise awareness, and to call companies to action to address it. I am curious 
how NATO would come into play in cyber warfare. Because, of course, we've heard a lot about Article 5, um, which says that if a NATO ally is the victim of an attack, every other member of NATO will consider that attack against all of them. Does Article 5 apply to cyber attacks? As you've said, we've noted that one or more, NATO has noted that one or more cyber attacks of a significant nature could reach the level that an Article 5 physical attack would happen because we'd be looking for equivalent parity with regard to impact. Okay. What is the threshold, I guess? Cyber is still a new field, Elsa. Mm -hmm. It's an area where we are learning how the principles that have been put in place from a national security perspective in the physical arena land in the cyber arena. So the principles we've put in place are to say, yes, one or more cyber incidents could reach the threshold of an armed attack to where it would reach an Article 5 attack. And we've having consultations among the countries who are participants in NATO to discuss what that might look like. That is Deputy National Security Advisor Anne Neuberger. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Elsa. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Wall Street has started up its second quarter up. The Dow rose 0.40 percent, 140 points, to close at 34,818. S&P gained 0.34 percent to finish the day at 45.46. The Nasdaq gained 0.29 percent. It finished the session today at 14,262. Details coming up on Marketplace in about 10 minutes. The Northboro-based electric vehicle company plans to build a new manufacturing plant in Georgia. Aspen Aerogel says the facility will build material that can protect batteries in the vehicles from fires. The plant is expected to employ about 250 people. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with Culinary and Pastry Certificate and Diploma programs starting May 6th. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. Benjamin Zander leads Mahler's Third Symphony with mezzo Susan Platz on April 8th. BostonPhil.org. Clouds went out going into the evening and for the first part of tonight, then clearing skies overnight, leading to a bright day tomorrow. Lots of sunshine, highs in the mid-50s again. Sunday should be the dimmer day, considerably cloudy, chance of afternoon showers, high temperatures just about 50 degrees. Red Sox were trounced by Tampa Bay 9-3 to today in Grapefruit League play. Celtics host the Pacers tonight at the Garden at 7.30. This is WBUR. Hi, I'm Eleanor Beardsley from NPR. It's very important that reporters document what is happening on the ground in Ukraine so that you hear the voices and stories of the people affected, not just those in power. NPR is able to bring you coverage from Ukraine because you support this vital work to bear witness. Your donation to this station makes it possible. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Kelsey Snell. What kind of person takes on the task of running for office and who has supported them along the way? Well, a new novel, Let's Not Do That Again, focuses in on the family of Nancy Harrison, who's in the House and running for Senate. There's her always supportive son, Nick, and her kind of off-the-rails daughter, Greta. It's a story of family, drama, humor, and co-op living in Manhattan. The author is Grant Ginder, and he joins us now. Welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So this is a very fun story. There's tension and family drama. And I have to say, I'm normally on Capitol Hill covering Congress. And this story made me think about the politics in our own families and the secrets we all carry. So I'm wondering, where did this story start for you? Was it a character, a moment? Where did you find these people? So I I conceived the book around, I would say around 2018 and finished it three years later in, 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 in probably 2021. And, and during that time, I, I watched as, as our government, I think, was being threatened from you know, left, right, and center, be it by, by a president who was telling like Orwellian lies or, or this global pandemic that was straining our institutions. And I kind of became obsessed with this question of how far I, or, or, or anyone for that matter, would, would go to protect American democracy. Which, which until this point was something that I had always just kind of taken for granted. Hmm. So I took that question and I said, okay, so, so, so that, that's kind of this interesting macro question, but, but what has always really interested me are, are family dynamics and particularly dysfunctional family dynamics. And so I thought, well, what if I, what if I give that question to, to this political family? And it has added weight because the consequences of it will, of course, you know, reverberate through this campaign, but will also drastically change their own individual futures. Yeah, I think it's really interesting you mentioned that because this is literally a political family, but it is also a very political story about family. <laughs> it is. It is. And and that question of how politics play out within a family where power dynamics are constantly shifting between siblings and between children has always really, really interested me. My, my past three novels have all been about that. And Let's Not Do That Again is, is certainly, certainly about those dynamics. So most people find escapism writing a story completely removed from the all political you know, landscape we live in right now. But you've really leaned into this. Why did you decide that? So in in one sense, it was my way, I think, of grappling just with what was going on in the world and what I was seeing. Um, but I also wanted to have fun with politics. I, it has been so long, I think, that we've been able to look at politics through this guise of, of, of humor and excitement and fun. And, and so I really wanted to capture that, that feeling that we got when we were watching Veep or The West Wing, and we were actually excited to engage in these stories. So you worked as a speechwriter, um, and you were a congressional intern. So did anything in that experience kind of find its way into this book? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> in terms of the interning on Capitol Hill, you know, you, you really, you as a Capitol Hill reporter, I'm sure you know, all the pomp and circumstance and respectability that you see 
on TV is is really just a matter of setting and lights, right? And that the, the, the reality is that no one really knows what they're doing until the moment that they're doing it. And that these elected officials and the staff members who attend to them are, are just as hapless as the rest of us. And so that dynamic certainly makes its way into the novel. Speech writing, I, I absolutely adored. Um, it was, it was, I think, one of the my my most enjoyable jobs that I've had. I will say that that I was terrible at politics when I was oh, in DC. Oh, really? I just, just what do you absolutely mean terrible? terrible at it. I think that, you know, I, I look at Washington as a town that trades and access and knowing things first, and it and it always felt like I was always the last person to know something. But when it came to speech writing, what I really loved was discovering and learning how narratives could be rhetorical and how stories could convince someone of something and change their mind. Um, and so I, I actually credit speechwriting for for driving me to to fiction, to write novels. I later went on to get my MFA in New York, but I still think that speechwriting taught me more about writing fiction, as it were, than any degree that I got. I'm so glad you mentioned the idea of stories driving politics because it seemed like a big theme throughout this book is how personal stories and powerful loneliness and powerlessness can be in and of themselves political motivations, not to mention love. So I'm wondering how you were thinking about those things as you were writing. There's one character in particular that is in fact manipulated by both lies that she's been told by members of her family and also stuff that she encounters, political rhetoric that she encounters online. And so that notion of, of how political narratives can change our minds for, for the better, but also for the worse, and how love, as you mentioned, can be, of course, this incredibly positive thing, but also can be used to manipulate and control were two themes that I was intensely interested in when I was writing the book. So this is also a very funny book. And one of the <laughs> yeah. things that was very funny to me is that Nick, Nancy's son, was walked away from working for his mother for a long time as a speechwriter and, and just kind of as everything to her in some ways. And he leaves and now he's teaching writing at NYU, but he's also working on this musical inspired by the life of Joan Didion, and it's called Hello to All That. I just, I have to ask, where did you get the idea for this? Is this some seed of reality? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, there is, so, there is, there is an unfortunate amount of reality in this, in that I myself teach writing at NYU, and I myself often teach essays by Joan Didion. I'm a, I'm a huge Didion fan. I'm also like a, a, an unabashed musical theater geek. And so I was working on the book, and I was trying to give Nick something to do. You know, he's, he's left working for his mother. He's finally striking out on his own. And I wanted him to write a musical because that just seems like such a pie in the sky dream, right? Like I know nothing about writing musicals, but I would love to write one. And I, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this guy that goal. And as you pointed out, the, the book, I hope, the, I hope people find the book to be very funny. So when thinking about that, I was like, well, what, what could be the most ridiculous thing, the most out of this world, inappropriate thing for a musical to be about? And, you know, musicals are, by their nature, I think, just intensely sentimental. Mm -hmm. And Didion was intensely unsentimental. <laughs> and so after teaching this Didion essay on self-respect, in class one day, I was walking home from the subway and I thought, you know what? That would be the most ridiculous musical I have ever seen. It's a <laughs> musical about the early life of Joan Didion. And so... 
you know, I started thinking about titles for it. And she, of course, has the classic essay about leaving New York, goodbye to all that. And so I just kind of flipped it around, helloed all that, put an exclamation point at the end. And I said, that's it. The exclamation point is really what does it. <laughs> <laughs> Grant Ginder, his new novel, Let's Not Do That Again, is out next Tuesday. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. When Abigail Barlow and Emily Baer watched the Netflix series Bridgerton, they couldn't stop thinking about it. So they wrote a song about it and then an album that has been nominated for a Grammy. Listen to the story on the next episode of NPR's podcast, Consider This. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Marketplace is coming up next. Could have a little rain tonight, then partly cloudy skies, breezy, not too cool, about 35 degrees. The weekend is decidedly mixed. Tomorrow should be dry, sunny, and comfortable. Highs near 52 degrees. Better day to beat outdoors. Then Sunday should be on the gray side and damp, mostly cloudy. The chance of rain, highs just about 50. Again, 52 degrees in Boston at 630. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by AVF. Offering sophisticated event services in person, online, or some combination of the two, bringing them to life at avfx.com/events. Zevin Asset Management, working to align investments with values like economic justice, human rights, and climate action. Zevin.com/wbur. And Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmers market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmers to you.com slash WBUR.